0: Welcome to the Plutarch Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Cox, from grammaticus.co. In this episode, we'll introduce Cicero, the last great statesman of the Roman Republic, a bridge for Greek philosophy into the Roman mind, and the greatest prose stylist in order of his day, or, depending on who you talk to, any day. Orator, philosopher, poet, statesman, savior of his fatherland, what does Plutarch have to teach us about Cicero? Let's just jump right into Cicero's life then, shall we? As is typical of Plutarch, he's going to compress the narrative to focus on the things that are most important. So we'll find that in this particular life, Plutarch is focused on Cicero's highest levels of political excellence. That's really two points. One is when Cicero is elected to the highest office in the Roman state, the consulship. And while he is a consul, he prevents a conspiracy from burning down the city, from murdering its most famous citizens, from a violent coup from within that threatened the very foundations of the state. So this is one of the reasons Cicero is looked back to as a hero and actually even, even in many ways treated as a hero in his own day because he's able to just with the force of law and the force of the senate to put on trial and condemn to death essentially men who have conspired against the state men who have con- committed treason this is some heady stuff right we have a man living in 1st century Rome and Cicero one of the reasons i start with him is because he really his life spans the entire 1st Centuries worth of problems. By the time he's dead, we have about a decade left in the Antony Octavian struggle before Octavian becomes the Emperor Augustus. And the rest, as they say, is history. But in that first century, we have three generations of civil war and Cicero lives through all of them. Cicero is born under the bloodshed of Marius fighting Sulla. He actually fights in small campaigns for Sulla inside of Italy and then He comes to the fore in his political career defending a man against Sulla in court. So both in politics and in war, Cicero's young life is overshadowed by the dictator Sulla, the first man to proscribe his personal enemies and put their names on a list so that someone could get a reward for bringing Sulla his head. It's pretty messed up stuff. But that's not even where it ends. So Cicero comes to age in this. Right, We've already talked about it His the height of his consulship. He prevents a civil war from breaking out or prevents bloodshed and riot in the streets and the overturning of the government. But then he watches as Caesar, Pompey, and Crassus divide the power of the empire between or among the three of them. And then he can't broker a deal with any of the men until it Crassus dies in Parthia, and Pompey and Caesar are essentially at civil war because Pompey eventually sides with the Senate, being afraid of exactly how many legions, loyal legions, Caesar has underneath him. So Cicero lives through that entire generation of civil war, fighting on Pompey's side, right? Coming back to Rome, greeting Caesar when Caesar has finished cleaning up in the Mediterranean for his empire building right his solidification of his power and then in another parallel from an earlier life he ends up defending a client in front of Caesar as judge and helping this client get off the client's name was Ligarius and it's one of his later last public speeches is the pro Ligario which Plutarch mentions in this life so there's a lot of really great and and cool parallels here but even that Cicero outlives Caesar, and there's very few people that we can say did that, take any of the men from this era, we just mentioned that Crassus dies in Parthia, Pompey dies in Egypt before Caesar does, Cato dies in North Africa, we'll get to the Cato, that's the Cato the Younger, who famously kills himself rather than be subject to the mercy of Caesar. And then Caesar is killed in the Senate by the famously by the senators Brutus and Cassius as recorded in shakespeare's play julius caesar so we have this fascinating survival cicero does not far outlive julius caesar only by about 16 months maybe even less than that but he still is able to see the rise of who rises in the power vacuum that caesar created well unfortunately not cicero even though he tries in part he tries because by using octavian and antony against each other but he makes such a powerful enemy of of antony that he causes his own death and antony creepily gleefully delights in the death of cicero and doesn't just demand his death or pay the price that he put on his head but posts the man's head and hands above the rostra where he used to speak to the people and the senate of rome so that's Cicero's life in a nutshell. Let's dive in, shall we, and see exactly why this fascinating man who covers the, the length of the tumultuous first century BC is really somebody that Plutarch thought was worth studying. One of the cool things I like about reading The Parallel Lives is that at, at first blush, you think that the most important parallels are the parallels between the Greeks and the Romans. But I think Plutarch consciously constructs these biographies where the parallels are almost every important character with every other important character. Obviously, he's going to accent Demosthenes and Cicero here, but throughout this whole life, we're comparing Cicero to Crassus and Pompey and Caesar and Cato and all of these men with their talents and abilities, their deficiencies, their vices. How were they as leaders? How were they as citizens? How were they under arms, how were they in the toga and this is going to be a really interesting take is that really one of cicero's weaknesses is that he never gains or even tries to go get the military glory that so many of his peers did in this era so his early political rise has the standard military service that you have to serve pretty perfunctory we don't have very many details about it plutarch mentions in passing that he served under sulla but he begins the political rise while he's serving under sulla i mentioned that he ends up defending somebody against a charge that sulla had brought against him and so in this defense he wins the case for this person but he basically excuses himself from the city of rome at a pretty young age maybe his early 20s because he knows that Sola is in charge and he's not going to risk staying close to home to see how Sola really wants to respond to the fact that somebody just stood up to him in a court of law. So he finds himself going to Athens and studying in Athens and Rhodes for several years. And in Athens and Rhodes, he gains a reputation and he gains a love of philosophy, sorry, a reputation for eloquence and a love of philosophy. These are the two things that are going to take him all the way through to the end. He already liked poetry. He had already been attracted to the Greek language. He becomes totally fluent in the Greek language. He gives a speech, actually, in the Greek language. And the Greek philosopher and orator who listens to him says that he has stolen the last treasure that the Greeks had, which was their eloquence. He also, while he's in Greece, goes to the Oracle of Delphi, who and the Oracle's advice to him is that he should make his own genius and not the opinion of the people his guide in life. So one of the big questions that Plutarch wants us to ask, without hitting us over the head with it, is do we think that Cicero does this in his life? Does he listen? Is he worried more about popularity? Or does he listen to his conscience, to his internal genius? When he needs to make some of the really difficult decisions that he's going to make. And I leave that up to you, dear listener. So at this point, Plutarch also turns and points us, points out for us his main weakness. And that is that Cicero is too, too salty. His eloquence goes to excess. And if he can make a hilarious joke or pun at your expense, he will not miss the opportunity. This is interesting because Plutarch is one of our, our main early sources for a perspective on Cicero other than Cicero's own words, right? So there's nobody from Cicero, from Plutarch's lives, whom we have as many primary sources about as we do Cicero, written in Cicero's own hand, right? Preserved for us and handed down through the centuries. So we really, between Cicero and Caesar, there's a lot of Plutarch's life that we can compare with other things. And so I'm going to bring up some of the quotations from Cicero's works, uh, both in defense and maybe to question some of Plutarch's stances. But I definitely recommend, you know, Plutarch is is introducing you to Cicero, but there's definitely no end. And you, would, you could fruitfully study the man Cicero for the rest of your life. Uh, we'll talk at the end about the influence that Cicero had on the West. And it was, well, It was at least as big as Plutarch's influence. So we start to see him rise with these public speeches. He's giving speeches in the forum, right? He gives that pro roscio. That's the speech where that makes him an enemy of Sulla and he has to leave. Then we find that he's climbing the political ladder. He serves as quaestor or treasurer, remember, in Sicily. He's very famous for being a fair Roman governor there. So fair that the Sicilians call him back when a later Roman governor is corrupt and they ask him to prosecute that corrupt Roman governor, which he does and which he wins. Uh, although varies, only punishment is to live in exile for the rest of his life in Marseille, France. Then he serves as a praetor in Rome. And finally, this leads up to the year 64 BC, right? So Cicero had been a young man in the 80s, not the 1980s, but 80s BC. But now by the 60s, he's really reaching the pinnacle of his career. And in 64 BC, he is finally elected consul. His colleague, remember there are two consuls and they serve for a year. His colleague, he sends to Macedonia, which means essentially Cicero has a lot of control for that year over what the Senate does, what they talk about. So it's a complex year for sure. But there's a couple of... A couple anecdotes that I really want to focus on because they just become a little microcosm that shows the macrocosm of Roman politics right now. The first is that Roman politics is massively dominated by the elite. The senators have the money and the power, and the regular people feel like they have less and less say, which means when they get a populist leader who can come in front of them and offer them what they want, they will often vote in all kinds of crazy ways to get a little bit more power so we'll see this used as a first century bc tool in basically dismantling the roman system but cicero has a different theory cicero sees the entire roman constitution uh, to use a modern analogy as an orchestra right the oboes can't be mad that they make a different sound and maybe a slightly more obnoxious sound sorry oboists than the violins or the French horns or the cellos. But the idea is that the cellos and the French horns and the oboes all have to follow the music. They all have to play the song. They all have to work in harmony in concert to make sure that everything goes well. Cicero uses the the word harmony to describe these things. So there's clearly a musical overtones with that, that word all the way back to the ancient Greeks. Cicero sees the job of the statesman is to harmonize those two elements, the popular element where the regular people feel like they have a voice, feel like they're contributing to the government, feel like they want to pursue their freedoms and can, you know, live their lives as Romans and that the senators have the leisure and the time to make laws that are focused on the common good. So, there's a small anecdote where Cicero is brought into a, there's a disgraced senator who can no longer sit in the section of the theater where the senators sit. And the, uh, or I think maybe it's the equestrian class, the, the class right below the senatorial class, the rank of the equestrians. And this guy is basically booed off or booed out of the theater by the regular people and it's great because all they do as plutarch tells us all they do is they send cicero in actually cicero pulls all the commoners and asks them to come to the temple of balana and in that temple he berates them so badly or convinces them so well nobody really knows the speech is not preserved that when that same man comes back into the theater and the and the regular people are there in their spots, they actually applaud him. So he completely changes their minds. And this is something that Plutarch respects immensely, is that orators have the power with their eloquence to do good. And that is one example. Now we'll see how much power does eloquence have? That's the question, right? The the final or the second instance in which we see this microcosm of the macrocosm of, of Rome at the time. Is in this Catalinarian conspiracy, there's there's a willingness of some of the elites to take advantage of the system as best they can for their own personal wealth and gain. Does that sound familiar at all to anybody? I hope not, because that's totally not how things are today. <laughs> so Cicero is serving, and there's a man Cataline who has tried to run for the consulship several times, and it's becoming more and more clear that Cataline has a aligned himself with a bunch of elites who have fallen from grace and fallen from power, and he wants to get them back in power by any means necessary. So that becomes really clear that it's by any means necessary when he loses the consulship to Cicero, because now he's willing to turn to arms. And this guy's name is Catiline, right? Catalina in the Latin. And he basically... I'll let you read it in Plutarch because it's it's a great story but basically he's discovered his plot is uncovered and there's enough people who unite with Cicero Cicero has a pretty cool network of people that trust him and give him information and Cicero is able to get proofs that these guys are committing treason want to overthrow the government want to kill many of the senatorial class want to set fire to the city I mean these are really serious crimes that ultimately he brings proof for and even gets confessions for or confessions about in front of the Senate so all of this is presented to the Senate he doesn't call a special trial he's really using the Senate as his as a jury in the same way that you know we do for a presidential impeachment so Cicero does this and he succeeds all the way to the point where Catiline has run away from the city and is now amassing an army outside of the city of rome to try to take him on but cicero is has in custody at least five of the major conspiratorial leaders that are in prison in different locations throughout rome and so then the question becomes what do we do with these men we know they're guilty they've all confessed We have damning evidence against them that they were willing to attempt treason to the entire Roman people, lighting the city on fire, murdering people in the streets. So what do we do? And in a fascinating debate that must have been high tension... the first senator whom nobody has ever heard of said they should be sent to prison and suffer the utmost penalty. He's not really specific about that. But most of the senators and remember that senators speak according to their rank. Eldest senators can speak first and then or the highest ranking ones. So it's either by age or rank. And then you ultimately work down the way. So we can kind of see Cicero obviously has the right to speak pretty much at any time because he's consul. But we're starting to see that the The way the debate goes is we're looking for from oldest to youngest, more or less. So Cicero speaks, and then a man named Julius Caesar gets up and basically says, we should not only not kill them, but all we should do is confiscate their estates and confine each of them in separate cities where they can be watched, where we can trust the people who would be watching them. This Julius Caesar doesn't speak very often in the Senate, but this is his passionate plea and sallust preserves or makes up some part of this speech so you can still read it in sallust bellum catalinae i'll put a link in the show notes and the whole tenor of the debate is changed and almost everybody now wants to side with caesar including cicero who's trying to meet him halfway thinking okay yeah maybe you're right maybe we don't have to kill these treasonous guys that's right yeah uh, capital punishment doesn't have to be the only option but then we continue going down in senatorial debate and now most people are nodding their heads with with Caesar does this sound familiar right but then we get to a pretty young senator Cato the younger and here we have three of the most powerful men of this century all in the same room and all talking about what they're going to do with the traitors that they still have in their custody and Cato says in no uncertain terms that they should absolutely positively execute the conspirators and take their property. And again, that speech is preserved or handed down or remembered or rewritten, I don't know, right, by Sallust in the Bellum Catiline, So it's a fascinating little microcosm to see. And what does Cicero end up deciding to do? Well, he gives a vote, put, puts the vote to the Senate, and the Senate ultimately, convinced really more by Cato's speech than anything else, condemns these men to death. And they cicero brings each one of them one at a time down the sacred way into the forum into the prison at the forum and uh has them executed in the jail there we also get a a cool perspective on what the romans are willing to say and not say about death so just as we speak euphemistically about death we'll say he passed on or if we're joking we'll say he kicked the bucket uh we tend not to just say he died what does cicero say well In order to avoid the bad omens that come from when you say he died, he says they lived instead of they died. As in, they have lived and they're not living anymore. So go home if you're still part of this conspiracy because the conspiracy is as dead as they are, basically. But he refuses to use the words dead. I think that that is another cool microcosm of the macrocosm of the tensions at this time, right? 64 BC is definitely the height of Cicero's power. And we could go into way more detail about the Catalinarian conspiracy, but it's intensely complex. So we're not going to, you can read about it yourself. And then we have the first major turn in Cicero's life for the worse. So he had one of his talents during the catalinarian conspiracy is the number of contacts that he had through all levels of society. So he was talking to regular street folk, he was talking to other senators, right Crassus was a was an informant of his. And one of these people that was an informant for him who had a lot of contacts in the regular folk was a guy named Clodius. Right after 64 BC, Clodius who was a friend of Cicero becomes an enemy of Cicero because of cicero deciding to testify in court against this guy there's a festival in rome during the winter time called the bona dea and what it is is this plays an important role actually in caesar's life in cicero's life and what it is is the bona dea is where the pontifex maximus's wife leads this sacrifice to this goddess and all of the worshipers of the goddess are only allowed to be women. So, men are essentially kicked out of the house of the Pontifex Maximus and, and probably theoretically kicked out of the city. You know, like, this is our day. This is what we're, how we're going to worship. So, unfortunately, this Clodius guy has fallen in love with a woman. And he thinks that the best way to get her or to get access to her, I should say, is to dress up as a woman remember he doesn't have a beard yet he's still a pretty young guy as to dress up as a woman and hide himself in the house until he can find her well as you can imagine that's a total comedy of errors and it really doesn't go well so the problem though is that he's taken something that roman religion takes seriously and treated it poorly so because of this bona dea scandal which is clodius goes into the house where only the women are supposed to be Disguised as a woman, a servant tries to talk to him, a servant woman tries to talk to him. He ends up giving himself away because he has a deep voice. He runs and hides, they find him, and what they end up doing is, well, what this ends up causing is a scandal for Clodius, who ends up being acquitted because he can bribe the jury, but Caesar divorces his wife, who was, because Caesar was the Pontifex Maximus at the time, and so his wife is the house in which this was happening and he, he just wants to distance himself from the whole scandal so he just divorces his wife and cicero testifies in court against clodius so even though clodius is not convicted is not convicted as, as guilty clodius now hates cicero and works for the rest of his political career against him so what does that end up looking like well we get a lot of things but the first and foremost is that now the third the first triumvirate is in its full power after cicero has served as consul the first triumvirate really comes to power because pompey marries julius caesar's daughter julia and decides to go to gaul and then pompey and crassus get to share power as consuls in the 50s so you have this secret pact and Cicero is an outsider they actually thought about including him but he is an outsider in the end so Clodius as tribune not military tribune but tribune of the plebs uh, stirs up the people and brings a trial against Cicero that he had murdered Roman citizens without a trial that's the thing that's brought against Cicero and Clodius does such a good job of getting the people fired up about it and whipping up everybody about it. Cicero essentially sends himself into exile rather than face the charges. It's a really good question to ask yourself. Did Cicero really commit murder in guiding the Senate through the uncovering of and proving of treasonous men? And then by putting it to senatorial debate, what laws did he break? Very good question. One I'm not going to try to answer on this podcast. But Clodius seems like a political opportunist, no matter where you stand on that question. (laughs) He brings this up at a totally convenient time to get Cicero out of the city so that Pompey, Crassus, and Caesar can do exactly what they want. At the same time, Clodius has found a job for Cato to do in Cyprus and Byzantium. So both Cato and Cicero are sent out of the city in the same year. And actually, after Cicero leaves, the banishment becomes official. Then, with Cicero not there to defend himself because of his eloquence, right, Clodius can call one of the assemblies of the people together and declare Cicero an official exile, which means he can't come within 500 miles. Italy, he cannot receive any wealth from his house, and he cannot, he should be denied fire and water, which is basically, you know, food and shelter. By anybody inside of the peninsula of Italy. So that's pretty harsh. And it does force Cicero to leave even Italy. He actually goes all the way to Greece, and he's he's pretty depressed at this time. He doesn't he doesn't take it very well. Sixteen months later, though, he's able to return, and shortly thereafter, actually, Clodius is killed in a street fight. When Clodius is killed, guess who defends his murderer in a trial? Yep, that's right. It's cicero but cicero actually this is his most famous failure or his most famous flub because in the promilone where he's defending milo the guy whose street gang murdered clodius in a gang fight he is surrounded by soldiers and pompey is sitting up on the chair of judgment in the in the praetor's chair and cicero is so i guess unnerved by the soldiers inside the roman forum that he seems to have a nervous breakdown or can't speak very well or can't speak loud enough. Different people reconstruct it in different ways, but Plutarch basically tells us he fails and Milo is convicted, though Milo didn't help the case, as you'll see in Plutarch's life, but he fails, Milo is convicted, and Milo is sent into exile in Marseille. So, but at least Cicero is back in public life, He's actually sent away again, this time to Asia Minor, to be a a governor of Bithynia, which is a, a small region in Asia Minor. And again, he's able to use his eloquence to bring people together, to bring around a province that was probably going to revolt and go to the side of some Parthian or Armenian king. He brings them back around and they become loyal subjects of Rome. They pay their taxes. They, you know, listen to roman laws and he's seen as an effective and good governor he actually is able even to clean out the bandits living in the mountains who are interrupting trade and commerce and and peace so cicero finds a province on the verge of revolt and he leaves a province more faithful to rome than he found it And actually more peaceful and prosperous itself than he found it so that's really cool and it's one of cicero's talents the question is is when he comes back to rome is he going to bring that talent with him and the answer is that within a few years of returning from his trip to or his governorship in asia minor he's returning to pompey and crassus and pompey and caesar being at odds crassus has died in parthia and Pompey has now aligned himself with the senatorial faction as Caesar walks down from Gaul with several legions behind him and he makes several demands, and the Senate basically says no to all of them. So once he crosses the Rubicon, right, the rest is history. Pompey and all of the senators with him flee. Cicero is not one of those who immediately flees with Pompey. Cicero stays in the city and at this point still seems neutral. So that's really interesting. One of the questions you could ask is not only what if Pompey didn't flee, what if Pompey and the senators had stayed in or around Rome instead of just handing Italy over to Julius Caesar? But another question is what if Cicero had stayed longer? And what if Cicero had chosen sides differently? Anyway, Cicero doesn't end up staying. He does end up clearing out after Julius Caesar's first place he goes is Spain. So he doesn't face Pompey immediately. He goes to Spain and he and Cicero takes that opportunity to run away and go to Pompey's camp, which is now across the Adriatic in modern northern Greece. The problem there is that because he has no military experience, nobody really wants to use him for anything. So technically he outranks Cato, right, because Cato never served as a consul. So... They technically put Cicero in charge of um, the naval establishment, but that's that's not true. In fact, Cato ends up, because Cato has so much more military experience and is willing to dive into the military aspect of things, Cicero sort of ends up looking more like a clown as he walks around and makes fun of people. And at least that's the way that Plutarch paints it, right? Pompey doesn't end up using him for anything military it's weird for the sen- the whole Senate to be on the run and to be pretending that they're still the Roman Senate, even though they're not in Rome. And they all seem pretty confident that they can beat Julius Caesar. So Cicero adds very little to that. And as a matter of fact, he adds so little that after they lose at Pharsalus, they, just a quick reminder, right? Pompey runs to Egypt to try to gather new resources and continue the resistance, But he's beheaded by the pharaoh before he even lands. And then Cato is now the next leader. And he marches with what little troops he has from North Africa all the way across the deserts of North Africa to Utica, which is really close to Carthage. And that's where he wants the senatorial people to make their last stand. There's already some senators there, and he's trying to gather more and more to himself. But that's in the life of Cato. So, what does Cicero do? Cicero runs back to Rome. He goes back to Rome. He's not really involved in the rest of the Civil War, and so as, Cis- as Caesar mops up all around the Mediterranean, he goes to Spain one more time. He goes to North Africa. He mops up in Central Asia Minor. He has the whole Alexandrian campaign. Caesar comes back, and Cicero goes out to meet him, and you think, like, okay, well, what's how is Caesar going to treat Cicero, who took up arms against him, didn't remain neutral, and The two men walk side by side on Caesar's journey back to Rome and talk about a lot of things. So it's really interesting. One of the key things to bring up here is that Caesar now has twice in this life, in Cicero's life, right? We're not even talking about Caesar, has twice brought up one of the things he was most famous for in the first century, and that is his clemency or his mercy. Or the fact that he treated his enemies differently than the way most everybody else in that century treated their enemies. He errs on the side of forgiving his enemies because I think it makes them owe him one. And so he thinks that that's a powerful way to act as a client or helper of somebody. But one of the people who praises most famously Caesar's clemency is Cicero. There's a speech that Cicero ends up giving in front of Caesar that I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast And he says, oh, admirable clemency, deserving to be celebrated by all possible praise, publicity on writings and in monuments. That is pretty high praise. Literally, Caesar is the judge in the speech that he's giving that to. So he's praising Caesar in front of Caesar pretty unabashedly. Then where is Cicero now? Okay, so he's gone from his highest high to his lowest low. At least Caesar didn't kill him. But his personal life takes a term for the worse, Because as Caesar takes more and more of the power, remember, this is the time period where Caesar's declaring himself dictator and then dictator for life, right? Brutus and Cassius are planning to kill Caesar. Cicero is not on the inside track of that plan, even though he's a close personal friend of Marcus Brutus. And Plutarch tells us why. They're worried about Cicero's fear. I mean, Cicero was the guy who, after the battle goes badly in the first round of civil war, just leaves. He doesn't keep fighting. He doesn't go to North Africa. He doesn't accompany Pompey to Egypt. He just leaves. So there could be some good argument that Cicero would have been too afraid to go through with Brutus and Cassius's plan. There's also could be other arguments that they didn't want somebody like him coming in because he would control the conspiracy a little too much or tended to be that he would have been the, you know, the older senator and, or the more honorable senator because of his past deeds. So what do we have then? Cicero's out of the loop on the fact that Caesar's going to die. He's out of the political loop because Caesar's now making all the changes he wants. He's reforming the calendar and reforming the laws. And, and what does Cicero do? His personal life takes a turn for the worse because he loses his daughter and he divorces his wife. But at the same time that his personal life is rocky, he tends to be writing almost all of the philosophical works that he wrote. So most of what we would have if Cicero had lived a public life, it seems, is only his public speeches, only his defenses and prosecutions of different people committing different levels of crime in the Roman state. When he did those, by the way, he never accepted payment. So it was understood that he was doing it for a friend. So he's out of the loop on the assassination he's starting to write all of these philosophies. He might even write a history of Rome in which he would combine it with the history of Greece, Plutarch tells us. Oh wait, that sounds a lot like what Plutarch is doing, (laughs) except by means of biography. So he almost does that, but he decides against it, and then boom, like a lightning bolt out of nowhere, Cicero is in the room as Caesar gets stabbed. He's one of the senators that freaks out, runs away, has no idea what's happening, And so he lives on after Caesar dies. Well, what does he do with living on? At first, he tries to make it so that Brutus and Cassius are not seen as enemies of the state. They only killed Caesar. They didn't also kill Antony. You know, there there's a way that we can move on without having a huge cataclysmic civil war. At least that's what Cicero wants. But what Cicero doesn't take into account is Mark Antony and the regular people. Cicero did not go to speak to the regular people. He probably huddled in his house for a few days like everybody else because nobody else knew what was going on. Plutarch doesn't tell us. But he does tell us that Mark Antony brings Caesar's tunic, and this scene is immortalized now in the Shakespeare play in Act 3, brings Caesar's tunic down to the forum and shows the regular people Caesar's body and tells them about Caesar's glorious deeds. And instead of having a normal orderly funeral... They light Caesar's pyre right there, and then they use the fire from Caesar's funeral pyre to light the houses of Brutus and Cassius on fire, and the other conspirators. So they're running around the city, setting fire to those who killed their hero, and Brutus and Cassius realize that what they made was a martyr. And what they had was a plan to murder him, but not a plan to control the government afterwards. They really only had a plan to control the senate. And they completely misunderstood that the Senate is only part of the governing body of Rome. Antony, in a masterstroke, realized that the populace was the people that he could turn to in order to solidify his power. So with Brutus and Cassius out of the city, Cicero and Antony become intense enemies. Cicero decides... Completely against what he had done with Caesar. He was almost willing to work with Caesar, get out of Caesar's way, make excuses for Caesar, help Caesar. There was a mutual respect between Caesar and Cicero that you just do not see at all. You don't feel a whiff of it between Cicero and Antony. So he declares Antony in his head first an enemy of the state. He gets close to Octavian and he's trying to use Octavian to play Antony off the problem I think is here that Cicero underestimates Octavian who uses Cicero as long as he needs to to get the support of the senate to feel out the situation and then allies himself with Antony in what's called the second triumvirate and that is the coup de grace of the entire century of bloodshed because it is everything all at once. It's the civil wars of Sulla Sulla and Marius. It's the proscriptions of Marius and Sulla. It's the war of Pompey versus Caesar, but bigger because first Antony and Octavian are going to join forces to have Romans kill Romans in fighting against Brutus and Cassius. And then they're going to split forces and their naval engagement in 31 is going to be Romans versus Romans as Octavian takes on Antony's navy and beats it. But we've got to get just to the end of Cicero's life. So here we are. They join power, the three of them. Lepidus, right, is the third man in the second triumvirate. And they make a list of over 200 people that they want to be put to death. But the greatest contention in all their debates, I'm just reading straight from Plutarch now, was on the question of Cicero's case. Antony would come to no conditions unless he should be the first man to be killed. Lepidus, held with Antony, and Caesar, that is Octavian, opposed them both. They met secretly and by themselves for three days together near the town of Bononia. Octavian contended earnestly for Cicero for the first two days, but on the third day he gave up. The terms of their mutual concessions were these. Octavian would desert Cicero, Lepidus would desert his own brother, and Antony would give up his uncle by his mother's side. This is also very well told in Act 4, in just a matter of a few lines, in Act 4, Scene 1 of Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. But here's Plutarch's comment on it. Thus, they let their anger and fury take from them the sense of humanity and demonstrated that no beast is more savage than man when possessed with power answerable to his rage. So that is what Cicero died of. He died of someone else's rage, Mark Antony's rage. And so we get at the age of 64, Cicero originally starts running away. He's being carried by his slaves and he is trying to run away to the coast to catch a ship to get away. And then he just kind of realizes like this is futile. They're going to follow me. They're going to get me. They're going to kill me. All of his wealth, all of his estates, almost all the people he loves are in Italy. So abandoning it doesn't make sense. Even though he has abandoned it before, he will not do so again. And so he gets out of his litter and he offers his head to the soldier, basically just gives him his neck. And the soldier cuts it off, brings it to Antony, and we get the morbid description of Antony's delight. So this one went a little long because Cicero's life is really important. Uh, And I like Cicero a lot. There's so much that I didn't even touch on, but I hope you enjoyed learning about Cicero. I hope this inspires you to actually read some of the Awesome details about some of these things. And Cicero just serves as a great introduction to the civil wars just because he lived through so many of them. So, the last thing I want to say though is that Cicero's influence on language just cannot be underestimated. So, Cicero had a freed slave that outlived him named Tiro. And Tiro took all of Cicero's manuscripts, all of his letters, all of his philosophical works, and He collated them all, took them all to Cicero's best friend, Atticus, who lived in Athens at the time and had the best library probably in the Mediterranean world at that time. And Atticus had a bunch of slaves trained as copyists who copied out all of the works of Cicero, his letters, his speeches, and his philosophical tracts. And that's the primary reason that Cicero is the person that we have the most of his original words and works from pagan antiquity. I cannot think of anybody who is better preserved from the pagan past, but it's not just the pagan past. Cicero was the favorite read of St. Jerome and St. Augustine, who were two of the most prolific Western Latin church fathers. The Bible, if you're reading it in Latin, is St. Jerome's translation. St. Augustine's works dwarf the works of Cicero. Through St. Augustine, Cicero's style lives on, his word choice lives on. If you study Cicero and St. Augustine, you would be, with the exception of a little bit of Christian vocabulary, you would really be studying the same kind of Latin. And then because of the influence that both Cicero and St. Augustine had on medieval renaissance, early modern, and modernity, it just can't be underestimated. And Cicero's shadow stands over everything. So I hope that that excuses my... Going a little long, I wanted to end with a couple cool things that Cicero also brought so many of the Greek philosophical ideas into Latin and we end up having those in the English language because of Cicero. So I just will end with a list of words that Cicero brought by translating Greek ideas into Latin that give us the direct English word that we have today. And those are words like quality, individual, vacuum, moral, property, induction, element, definition, difference, notion, comprehension, infinity, appetite, instance, science, image, and species. All of those words are from Latin, but all of those words originally had some important philosophical meaning in the Greek tradition. And Cicero welds those two traditions together by forcing the Romans to look at Greek philosophy and learn it in Latin. That about wraps it up for this episode. You can find more information about this podcast at grammaticus.co slash podcast. Please leave a review of the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, and that'll really help other people find it. And again, thanks for listening, and I hope I've inspired you to open Plutarch and let his lives affect yours.